Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks very much. And what a joy it is to be in this park today. Twelve months ago, this was the last thing that we enjoyed as a, uh, as a, a public grouping before COVID lockdown happened. And we felt incredibly fortunate to have actually got through Riders Week 2020. I feel even more fortunate that we're at Riders Week 2021. So welcome. Um, thank you. Yeah. In keeping with that, we're trying our very best to make everyone COVID safe. Please look, there are chairs where we've got marks across them where we're trying to leave vacant chairs. There's also hand sanitizer all over the, um, uh, all over the park. Please do your very best to look after each other and to care for each other. We want to make sure that this festival is a great success and we're, it's quite incredible. This is the only arts festival that can occur in the world at the moment. We're very fortunate. Yeah. Uh, my name's David Sly, I'm an Adelaide journalist and it's my great pleasure to introduce today's session. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge that we are on Ghana country and I'd like to thank the Ghana people for their wonderful welcomes to country that are teaching all of us more about this land that we live on. We respect the Ghana elders past, present, and their current and emerging leaders. A couple of little pieces of uh, housekeeping information. Please put your phones on silent. We don't want to hear all sorts of cute ringtones through the, through the show. If you're tweeting and Instagramming, the hashtag is hash ADLWW. We ask you that you support the authors and Adelaide Writers Week by purchasing books in the book tent, which is just over there near the entrance. There will be a book signing by my guest here immediately after the session. He has put some hard work in already and has multiple copies pre-signed. So if you aren't comfortable with being in a queue, you can actually get signed copies from the book tent as well. Let me assure you, though, I've been bathing in hand sanitizer before I came here, so I'm quite clean. As clean as he possibly can be. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my great privilege and pleasure to introduce you to Mr Richard Feidler. Thank you. <laughs> Richard, as you will know, um, is one of Australia's great radio broadcasters, also one of Australia's great conversationalists and interviewers, so there's no pressure here on me at all <laughs> today. But he's also a pretty nifty author who's come up with three wonderful books about cities and places. Um, they're probably the largest, most inconvenient travel guides that you can actually <laughs> put into your, into your bag. But as somebody who took his second book, which was called Saga Lands, and I took it to Iceland, it is a very good travel companion, Richard. It really does work in that way. What Richard's been doing in these books is I think he's really refreshing and, and challenging the way that we can read history in a modern context. History books can be stuffy and dry. The way that Richard actually introduces history, it's got an energy and an excitement. He's a storyteller and he makes history come alive on the page. To me, that's incredibly exciting. And it's obvious that you've needed to actually address the way that you write history from a, a clear perspective of how you wanted to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I 
have always loved reading history. I read a lot of history uh, in my 20s while I was on tour, coming to places like Adelaide with the Doug Anthony All-Stars, sitting in the back of uh, filthy Tarago vans with the most foul-smelling men in the entire Western world, uh, and sort of losing myself by reading history. My, my, my dad was a big history lover as well. He was an autodidact, didn't go to uni like I did, uh, but nonetheless sort of taught himself about the history of the world. And we had a, a, a shelf of wonderful books at home of hardback histories. And I remember looking at them as a kid thinking, wow, you know, if I could read those, I'm pretty sure I'd unlock the secrets of the world and the universe. And so that, that always, big history books to me have always felt like a treat. Like, I look at them on the shelves of uh, bookshops and I go, oh, goody. And I I've always wanted to write these books myself. It's interesting, the three books that you've written, um, you've done them from a perspective of... It's not just a history book. There's very much a personal entry into those books. The first book that you wrote in 2016, Ghost Empire, was built on a journey that you did with your son, Joe, and you went to Constantinople and mm. you looked at the great city of Constantinople uh, through your and your son's eyes and then stepped back through history to actually figure out why is this place so special. The second book that you did was with a good friend of yours, Kari Gislason, an Icelandic, who taught you about the sagas and then spent time, you were able to spend time with him in Iceland to actually live the sagas, to go and actually walk around the country and to learn where that came from. And they were very, two very personal perspectives while still being very respectful of the journey of history as well. Yeah, that's right. And this book for me is... Uh, Golden Maze is the story of my personal immersion, my introduction to... It begins with my introduction to the city of Prague uh, in the aftermath of the Velvet Revolution, which is one of the most exciting experiences of my entire life. It's something I never forgot. It still affects me emotionally to remember what I saw and did during those weeks I spent in Prague at the time, uh, amongst the, what I think were the happiest people in the world living in the world's most beautiful city, despite being grimy and sort of a bit broken down after four decades of Soviet-style communism, to see the elation in the streets, the sense of urgency and celebration and joy at the time in this magical, profoundly weird place was one of the most moving and powerful and exciting experiences of my entire life. And that's, that's how I start this book. It's interesting because you went to Prague not having a great knowledge no. of it or a great love affair until you actually arrived. It was almost by happenstance that you thought it would be very interesting to get to this place right now at this point in history. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was performing in London, doing a theatre season in London and in 1989, and people here might remember that that was the, the year of miracles. It's sort of a very different time to the one we live in now where good news kept coming in all the time. You know, uh, dictatorships were being overthrown and replaced by brand new shiny democracies. And it was like that uh, through the... the um, the whole period of 89. So while in London, I was performing and I couldn't go over and see for myself and one by one, these old police states set up by Joseph Stalin after the Second World War collapsed under the wave of popular uprisings. First it was uh, Poland, then Hungary. Then in November, you might remember the Berlin Wall came down. I was sitting in London watching footage of people dancing on top of the Berlin Wall, drinking champagne, thinking, God, why can't I be there right now? But I couldn't get there because I had to keep performing in London. So as soon as our theatre season ended, uh, my girlfriend came to London and she and I flew first to Berlin and then we arrived in Prague. 
Now, I knew nothing of the city. I knew fragments of its history just from knowing a bit about the Second World War and the Prague Spring of 68. But we, we got there. I, I, I couldn't even book a hotel room because I'd heard there was one hotel to stay in, which was the Grand Hotel Europa in Wenceslas Square. Uh, I rang them, and I had no check, and they had no English, so they just hung up. So, <laughs> so I arrived there at this hotel, and this was like a, a week after they'd overthrown their government, this police state of bland and cruel uh, communist bureaucrats. And the man who replaced them, the new president, was the leading dissident, a hippie playwright named Václav Havel, a man who kind of unimpeachable courage and integrity, who'd spent years in jail as a dissident, this lovely man was suddenly the president of this joyous republic. So the streets were full of people, there was so much going on, flyers being handed out everywhere, uh, people drinking in the streets, which I'm always in favour of just quietly and <laughs> under those circumstances. Um, it, it was so exciting. So we checked into this hotel, and uh, which dealt with the incredibly rude and hostile front desk staff, who I now realise were all members of the secret police who were waiting to lose their jobs, and so no wonder they were in a pretty filthy mood. And we were staying, found ourselves staying on Wenceslas Square in this Art Nouveau palace, the Grand Hotel d'Europe, with these curling, winding staircases, these beautiful rooms, a glorious cafe downstairs with a gypsy orchestra playing, and it was also deliciously threadbare and run down. The paint was peeling, the carpet was threadbare, uh, the radio station in our room had one radio, sta radio, radio station on, on, which was the state radio channel. So all of this was thrilling and delicious. So, yes, we arrived there knowing nothing. I had two words in Czech, which were prosim, which means please. No, three words. Prosim, please. Jukui, which means thank you. And pivo, which is beer. And, of course, that then led to a wonderful time. <laughs> Look, those three words will get you everywhere in this world, I find. Yeah, yeah. So how did you negotiate the city at that point? You didn't know much about it. There's all this excitement and energy, and it's left such an indelible impression on you. What happened at that time? Well, um, one of the things was that uh, Australians were unthinkably exotic to the people of Prague at that time. They'd never seen such creatures before. And here, <laughs> me and my girlfriend were a couple in captivity in their city. Um, we, um, one, one of our first nights we were there, we went out to Wenceslas Square late at night uh, for the commemoration of one of the great martyrs of the city's history, a young man named Jan Palak. Jan Palak was a student who, in January 1969, self-immolated at the top of Wenceslas Square in protest at the Soviet invasion of his city. And it was terribly tragic. And people who tried to commemorate his death uh, had found that they were being chased away with water cannons and police with batons in the past. So this was the first time they could legally commemorate this poor man's death. So we went out to the near the statue of St Wenceslas in, in uh, Wenceslas Square and there was a big sort of wedding cake of melted candle wax and flowers and messages and all that. And two soldiers came up to Josephine and I, two young guys, they would have been about 19, in these oversized sort of army greatcoats, because this is winter, and they said to me, pivo, 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 and I said, yes, beer. I thought, this would be fun to go drinking with a bunch of Czech soldiers, so I said, sure, you know, come with us, uh, hotel, pivo, yes, I'll buy you a beer, you know. And uh, they got, he said, one of the soldiers, Jan, said to me, oh, American, and I went, no, 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 Australia, and he went, ah, Australia, he went, Sydney, Adelaide, Melbourne, Perth. 
like he'd studied his geography book. <laughs> and then he went, ah, Australia. He went, SEDC. SEDC. <laughs> and then he went, Angus, Angus. And then he started to copy Angus Young by playing air guitar in the middle of Winchester Square, even making his little sort of uh, jailbreak sort of electric guitar solo. I thought, you're kind of fabulous. <laughs> so we went back to the bar at the mezzanine bar at the Grand Hotel Europa, and um, these guys were fairly young fellas. So after they, they served beer in like vase-like quantities there, which is also a marvellous thing. And so Jan turned out to be a bit of a two-pot screamer, so he was, he was, he was pretty schnickered after one of these glasses. And, and he, we, we got quite emotional, and he said to me, Richard, and I said, yes. He said, we are friends, yes, yes. He said, Richard, Australia, Czechoslovakia, America, Germany, Poland, one world, please, one world, please, please. And I said, yes, yes. And he went, no, no, listen, please. Australia, Czechoslovakia, America, Russia. And as soon as he said Russia, the guy at the next table leapt up, came over and went bang on the coffee table, the table making all the glasses bounce. And he went, no, Russia, not Russia, no, no. And stormed out because memories of 68 uh, are still pretty, pretty hard uh, on the Czech people there. And, and he just ignored him, went back saying, Australia, Czechoslovakia, one world, please. And, and the reason why he was doing this because suddenly became very apparent to me. And that's because we all knew at that moment we were going to have a future again. Now, uh, I, I came out of high school out of Norwood High here in Adelaide in 1981-82 thinking I wouldn't live to see 30 because this is largely forgotten now. The Cold War tensions of the early 80s were such that people my age really expected to expire in a nuclear holocaust. And we, there was kind of almost no point in planning for the future. It felt like it was so inevitable. Uh, I went to uni in Canberra at ANU, and we used to have conversations in the refectory along the lines of, so if there is a nuclear exchange, would Canberra be a target? And the people go, oh, yeah, mate, the Deacon Telephone Exchange, mate, the Soviets will want to take that out. <laughs> and, uh, and so this, we thought, meant we'd be atomised rather than die a long, lingering death in a nuclear winter. These are not good conversations for young people to be having. So to be there in Prague, to have had their Velvet Revolution, was the final nail... In the, at the end of the Cold War. The Cold War was over, and so Jan, the soldier, and I had our futures back, and we could think about having a future again. So this is why all these kind of silly and important moments are all bound together for me in, in a feeling of love and optimism. It's fantastic. It's led to the point where it's time to write another book, and you decide to actually write a book on Prague. How difficult was it to channel that simple affection into saying, I'm going to write a book about this city and trying to figure out the shape of how you wanted that book to be. Well, Prague was very mysterious to me when I was there in uh, the Velvet, Revol Velvet Revolution aftermath. It was so stunningly beautiful and weirdly so. And it also had this odd feeling of familiarity. And this is something that many people who come from New World cities experience when they go to Prague. It's so enchanting. And you go, why, why, why does this feel a bit like a memory of some kind? And it takes you a while to put your finger on it. And it's because Prague is the landscape of all those old European fairy tales and folk tales that we're given as children that live and burn in our imaginations. And we walk away from that landscape. But it's still there in the back of all our minds if we had them as kids, those old grim fairy tales and folk tales. And so to walk into Prague is to walk straight into that landscape and you think, oh, this is suddenly, suddenly real. Uh, 
But Prague is not the venue of the Disneyfied version of those fairy tales. It's the, it's the city of the older and crueler version of them, the one where Cinderella's older sisters lop off parts of their feet to fit them into the glass slipper, the one where Little Red Riding Hood uh, opens up the larder at the wolf's house to find bits of her grandmother inside there, then is forced to dance naked before the wolf before he devours her, and that's the end of the story. There's no noble woodsman to come to her rescue. So Prague has that sense of anticipation about it, that sense of the uncanny, of the liminal about it, where you feel you're on the threshold of somewhere else. If you just went around the corner, you might find a golem, a robot, a human turned into a cockroach. These are three monsters that are all of Prague. It's quite incredible. And as you've gone into research this book, um, I think the level, the layers of complexity that you had to in, both encounter in your research and then try and to build a narrative around, you've got such complexity in Prague. Let's start with the nationalities to start with. The Jewish quarter, the German, the Czech people, all in one very contained space that becomes a difficult narrative to try and draw all the threads neatly together as well. Oh, oh, yes, yes, indeed it does. Look, it's been a city for a thousand years. There's great arguments about who was there first and... Yeah, yeah. But as an outsider, you don't get too caught up in whatever Czech chauvinism or German chauvinism or whatever chauvinism there is that's around. Um, yes, it was very likely founded mostly by... Uh, Western Slavic people who are the, the Bohemians, as we now know them. The reason why we get the word Bohemian is because in France, uh, Bohemian was a word they used for gypsy people. So when gypsy people came to Paris, they were called Bohemians because they were thought to have been from Bohemia, which is why we associate the word Bohemia with that kind of a life, uh, sleeping in late, living for art, dancing, fun, you know, that kind of a thing, dying, starving in a garret, all of that. Uh, so the, the Bohemians were were one of many people that came into the area, made a settlement there, and German people came to live there as, as specialised craftspeople, and very soon afterwards, Jewish people came to live there. And they're foundationally the three great people of the city. And I was delighted to find our graphic designer, at, uh, who designed this cover, incorporated all three elements here. The, the border on this and the white text on red, that's the colour of the Czech street signs of Prague. There's black and gold to represent the German people of Prague, and I asked them to add a little gable here, which is the gable of the old new synagogue in the Jewish quarter of Prague. So it's a story of various peoples who have coexisted, interacted, uh, shared all sorts of things, have gone to uh, fought each other, have perpetrated terrible cruelties upon each other, have performed enormous kindnesses with each other. It, all, all of that is all bound into the story of, of Prague. And, and it's only, it was only the catastrophe of the 20th century that pulled those three people apart. Firstly, after the Nazi invasion, uh, just about the entire Jewish population of Prague that had been there for a thousand years were exterminated in the death camps. Then after the war, such was the, the poison that Hitler had injected into the city, into the country, that the German inhabitants of the city and of the country were very largely expelled. So it's now a much more Czech place than it ever has been in the past. But that that's comes out of the awful and tragic story of the 20th century and the events that, that, that the, 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 
the crimes the two great dictators, firstly Hitler and then Stalin, have perpetrated on this beautiful place. You got to see and experience that from very close range when you decided to write this book. You went and stayed in Prague, mm. which um, your wife was very amused to tell me that you didn't stay in the beautiful Art Nouveau no. hotel. You actually uh, got a residency to go to a writer's flat, which was out in a very grim-looking cinder block building mm -hmm. out in suburban Prague, so you didn't get to have the fairy tale experience at all. No, I was fine with that. I have to admit I was fine. Well, it would have been nice to stay in the old town or the new town, you know, right near the trams and the cafes and everything. No, I was in one of the Soviet-style housing commission blocks uh, called Panalak uh, in, the, in the outer suburbs, near the movie studios out there. But it was fine. The room, the, the apartment was warm and airy. It was lovely. And it had been owned by a Slovak writer, Ladislav Nachko. And uh, it was good for me to experience that because that's as an authentic part of Prague as the beautiful old historic part of Prague. And even there, even those... Even those kind of grim Soviet-style tower blocks, there's something of the weirdness of Prague about even them. They, 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 those places feel quite airless and haunted late at night. So, again, there's that kind of liminal sense all the time, even in a, a place as grim as that. By living in Prague while you were writing um, and quite a concentrated time to, to get the work done, I think you really plugged into trying to understand the Czech psyche. You've already talked about different cultures having to live close together, all sorts of atrocities being uh, uh, put upon them. Um, and you, you really made efforts to try and unravel or try and answer questions that you had in your own mind about what makes the, the Czech psyche. What well, did you find? Well, firstly, above and beyond everything, for me in any case, is the Czechs are the greatest piss-takers in the entire world. Uh, they're a small nation. They've been lent on by great and powerful neighbours many, many times, and their way of dealing with overweening power is to satirise it, to poke fun at it, to make jokes about it in such a way that they don't know they're even being laughed at. Um, some people might have heard of the great Czech novel, The Good Soldier Schweik, uh, which is written by a man called Yaroslav Hasek, uh, where they have this practice where you can, you can thwart the occupying power by fulfilling every order 150%. You over-fulfill it, thereby defeating the purpose of the order, and when the boss shouts at you, you go, oh, I was just trying the extra hard. You know, that's, that's the way. Yaroslav Hasek himself turned out to be one of my favourite characters in the entire book. He, he appeared around about the turn of the 20th century, when it was still governed by the Austro-Hungarian Empire, when Bohemia was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And he, he, he was a, a pub dweller, uh, a drinker, who formed a political party in the pubs of Prague called the Party of Mild Reform Within the Limits of Austro-Hungarian Tolerance. <laughs> that, was, that's, that's, that was his start. Uh, he, 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 got, he, he wanted to marry a, an attractive woman, but her bourgeois parents didn't approve of him, so he had to take a proper job as the editor of Animal World magazine, then got sacked from the job by inventing animals and writing long articles about them. <laughs> For that, he was thrown into a lunatic asylum, and when he came out, he formed the Sinological Institute of Prague, which was a dog fancier salon, and what he would do is he'd go into the streets and find mangy strays take them in, dye their fur, and sell them off as rare, pure-breed animals <laughs> to the wealthy burghers of Prague. 
when World War I broke out, he wanted to take the piss out of all the, uh, the, the kind of hooray for the militarism and chauvinism of, that was going on at the time. So he, he checked into the top brothel in Prague, which was also a hotel, gave a Russian-sounding name, and for reasons for visit, he wrote, to inspect Prague's military installations. Half an hour later, police had surrounded the building with guns, <laughs> and when they realised that the offender was that idiot Hasek, who was well known to them, they arrested him and threw him in prison, and then they realised that when they looked at his Russian name, if you spelt it backwards, it meant kiss my ass in Czech. <laughs> So, and this tendency appears again and again and again in, in Prague. Uh, during one of the signs that something was up, that the Velvet Revolution was about to happen, was there was a, uh, there was a group that formed of students called the Society for a Merrier Present in 1988. And these were young men who organised a demonstration under this totalitarian system that was in place in 1988. They organised a demonstration across the Charles Bridge where they carried blank sheets with no slogans on them, but holding them up. They carried uh, were, were watermelons for helmets and had salami sticks for truncheons. And as they crossed the bridge with their blank banners, advocating nothing at all, they were arrested and the banners were confiscated, <laughs> which made everyone fall about laughing. After the Soviet invasion in 1968, the Soviet army and the police were everywhere on the streets stopping protests. Um, people were listening to the BBC on little transistor radios. So the police confiscated every transistor radio they could find. So, so, so Pragas would then get bricks of coal and put them up to their ear <laughs> and listen to that and they'd be confiscated as well. So <laughs> stuff like that makes life under totalitarianism bearable, I think. So, so God bless them for that. They are proper larrikins and it's hard not to love that about them. So you can sort of see where Kafka gets, you know, yes, he, he wasn't a lone figure no. with that sort of uh, worldview and sense of humour, that's for sure. The uptake of, uh, or the, the, the telling of the story through characters, through people, um, I found it interesting, not only people in, in Prague, but there are Australian Czechs that you actually introduce into the story as well, which, again, brings this history into a right-here-right-now perspective. I think that's a really lovely touch to the book, and you've used that um, quite a few times with your writing to make sure that it has a contemporary edge and the, the people telling the story have lived through the thing. So it's not dry history... It's very current and topical and, and very person-orientated history. Yes. But one of my... The, the, the moment I really knew I had a book was when I went to talk to Yaroslav Kovacic. Yaroslav, people might remember him here, he lived in Adelaide for some years. He was a presenter on Classic FM. I was a big fan of his. He used to do a show called Nova Acoustica and Dreamtime on, on Classic FM. And I knew his daughter, who works at ABC Adelaide as a, as a producer. So... It, so my wife and I tracked him down and found him on the New South Wales North Coast and went, went to his house and, and got his story. And I knew that Yaroslav would have an interesting story, and, and so it was. Yaroslav had grown up in Bohemia, was living in Prague in the 60s when there was that slow thaw, when suddenly there was a sense of possibility, where the films were getting really interesting. There was that new wave of Czech films coming forward, animation. Um, the culture was really starting to open up. And then in 68, they had a reformist communist leader, Alexander Dubček, who introduced freedom of speech and ended censorship. And for a brief eight-month period, there was this sudden flurry of creativity and criticism and democracy sort of sprang back into life again. And 
Yaroslav was never a fan of communism, though. He didn't think you could reform communism, which was the Dubček's project. He wanted to get rid of it and for them to become a normalised Central European state like Austria. Yaroslav told me he was, on the night of August the 20th, he was walking across the Legion Bridge in Prague. He'd been out late with friends. He could hear planes flying overhead in the cloudy sky, but thought nothing of it. Went home to bed in, in uh, Malastrana, where his apartment was, and was woken at three o'clock by a phone call from a friend saying, we are occupied, they're here. The Soviet army and their Warsaw-packed allies had invaded the country from various points, and tanks were rolling into Prague. He went down into Wenceslas Square, and there was an almighty racket down there. As, this was like a nightmare for the Pragas, because they many of them remembered Hitler's tanks being in Wenceslas Square, and now there were Soviet tanks. The soldiers in these tanks had been told that they were there to save the country from counter-revolutionaries and that be welcomed by, as heroes. Instead, what they found was people angry and in tears, bashing their fists against the tank, planting swastikas on the tanks, which was a shock, terrible shock to them all. He was standing watching this when one of the tank commanders panicked, the tank guns swerved around and just started open firing on the guns and tanks shells open fire on the, the protesters. Several people next to Yaroslav were killed. He ran, he legged it up past the National Museum into Vinohrady where the radio building is, the Czech radio building was where he knew friends were. That was blocked off by a flaming bus barricade. So he said he turned down a side street. It's an amazing story. He, down the side street he saw a row of Soviet tanks, he said, and a tank commander stood up and did this to him. And he said, I don't know why I, why, I, why I did what he commanded. It was stupid. He was my enemy, you know. But there was something compelling about this, Yaroslav said. So he walked towards the guy. And he leapt out of his tank, this Russian tank officer, came to Yaroslav, embraced him and said, I am so sorry. We shouldn't be here. This is a terrible thing that's happened. I am so sorry about this. And Yaroslav had tears in his eyes. They both had tears in their eyes, he said. He said, I, I'm like you, I'm a student. I was called into military service. You know, I'm, I'm from Leningrad. My wife's had a baby. When I come back, they're going to put me out, of, out uh, into the regions for two years. I'm not going to see my son for years and years. This is all a terrible thing. And, and, and Yaroslav, what could I do? I mean, he was just like, uh, he was saying, it's just, we were just two young men, the same kind of people. And it's just like politicians that set us against each other. Anyway, Yaroslav got out. He got out. There wasn't any point in him staying. He came to Australia, came to Adelaide, became a radio presenter. He thought, wow, it's a pretty amazing place where his English is wonderful, but where he thinks, you know, someone whose English is his second language can be a really prominent radio presenter. He was watching the Velvet Revolution unfold in 1989 on TV, and he got a phone call from Jana Vent. Jana, whose family are Czech, and whose parents Yaroslav knew. She said, I'm making a current affairs special. I want to take you to Prague. I want to film you returning to your home city. And he said, of course. So he goes back for the first time in 20 years. And he said it was terribly emotional. He could walk across the Charles Bridge. He could see all these friends. And he'd been out to dinner with friends one night. And he thought, I'll go into Wenceslas Square and have like a classic Czech sausage and a classic Czech pills and a beer. And he said he was in Wenceslas Square. And there was a group of young people 
playing music. There was a young Russian guy playing guitar, and they're all singing in Yaroslav. See, that's how it should be. You know, young people from, from everywhere enjoying each other's company, having a marvelous time. And he thought, I'll buy that young Russian guy a beer. And he buys him a beer, and they get talking, and he says, oh, where are you from? He says, of Australia, but I haven't been able to come back for 20 years. And the young Russian guy said, oh, was that because of the Soviet invasion? And Yaroslav says, how do you know about that? And he says, because my father was a tank commander from Leningrad. <laughs> and he was, came here, and he came, and I, I didn't see him for years when I was a boy, but when he came back, he said it was a terrible mistake and it should never have happened. And as Kim and I are sitting here, we're sitting there like a, a, a gape, and Yaroslav said, now I can't prove that that young man was the tank commander's son, but I really think he was. And that is like one of the most Prague stories in the world, that is. Mm full of coincidence and pathos. It's wonderful. Magnificent, yeah. Thank you. And I thank Yaroslav for that story too. It's quite striking, I mean, from your introduction to Prague, which you start the book with, as a young man who enters the city at the end of the Velvet Revolution and the people and the stories that in that modern context, there's a whole book right there. But you also choose to go back to the very origins and trace all of the incredible steps through the medieval years as well. What was your decision to actually go deep into Prague? Because it could have just been a book about modern Prague. Oh, the story of the foundation of Prague was irresistible. Mm. Absolutely irresistible. Uh, Prague has a Romulus, except, you know, a founding legendary figure, except the founder of, legendary founder of Prague is a woman. She was a witch priestess slash princess named Lubusha. And the legend about her goes that she stood on a bluff overlooking the Viltava River, which is where the river that runs through Prague now, and she was said to have had the gift of prophecy. And the legend goes, she was looking out, her eyes became dreamy, and she said, I see a great city. Its glory will touch the stars. And then it said she turned to her courtiers and said, go down into the forest below, and there in a clearing, you will find a man making the best use of his teeth at midday. That is where we will found our city. So the courtiers did as they were bid. They went down into the clearing and there were three men building a house. Two of them were eating their lunch, but a third man was using a saw on a block of wood. And that's when they knew they'd found their man. And they asked him what he was making. And he said he was making a threshold for a house. A threshold in Czech is Prague. That's where the name of Prague comes from. Prague means threshold. And what a perfect name for a place that for me in my, throughout my life has symbolised a place that feels like a threshold to another world, threshold to somewhere else, to something that's quite otherworldly, a place I just can't quite touch. Prague is the city which is attached to the Golem legend, the story of Rabbi Lerv, the great Jewish rabbinical scholar of Prague in the Renaissance era, who was, according to the legend, said to have built a monster out of river mud to protect the Jews of the Jewish quarter. Prague is where, where the first robot is imagined. The word robot is a Czech word. It means forced labour. And the first robots appeared on stage in a play called RUR, Rossum's Universal Robots, written by a Czech playwright called Karel Čapek in the 1920s. And he gave the word robot to an artificial humanoid. And right in that play, you get this idea that's now become a trope of modern science fiction that we give all these jobs to the robots and eventually they take over from us. And of course, also, it's famously where Franz Kafka wrote Metamorphosis, where Gregor Samsa wakes up one morning to find himself transformed into a giant cockroach. 
or vermin, as the word is better translated. So these three creatures come out of the threshold of Prague from the world's imagination and into our imaginations as well. So that was just like the perfect fable to start with. And also go back a few steps earlier, and Prague was this magnet for incredible minds, astronomers, the alchemists, um, some of the great mathematicians, all of these incredible brains seemed to resonate and, and take root in Prague. Yeah, that's, that's why um, I see a great city, its glory will touch. The stars is such an interesting line. Because it was in Prague that the great Rudolf II, one of the world's weirdest rulers, reigned, who was a lover of art, science, music, alchemy, magic, all of those things, and wanted to find shortcuts to power by finding the secret magic that exists behind the veil of the world. This was in the late 1500s, early 1600s. He was the Holy Roman Emperor and moved his capital from Vienna to Prague so he could live in Prague Castle. Much of the magnificence of Prague Castle is owed to Emperor Rudolf II, who was a very, very strange man indeed. He brought Tycho Brahe to Prague and then Johannes Kepler. And it's in Prague, working as his imperial mathematician, that Kepler deduced the secrets of planetary motion in Prague. One of the world's great achievements of astronomy was, was done in Prague. It was also in Prague that attracted great alchemists who were looking to create the Philosopher's Stone, the, the secret ingredient that would allow Rudolf to turn base matter into gold and thereby fund his foreign adventures and also to create an elixir of eternal youth because he was terrified of death. Queen Elizabeth's magician, John Dee, he came to Prague with his... Now, there's a title I'd like on my business card. <laughs> <laughs> he came to Prague... Uh, led there on a kind of a ruse by his, his charlatan sidekick, the Irishman Edward, Edward Kelly, who they brought with them a scrying stone and they absolutely believed themselves to be transcribing the conversations of angels while they were in Prague. It's an amazing place. This is the kind of place where incredible things like that happen, particularly at that point in time. You get that on one side and then you have such incredible conflict and heightened passions, including this rather peculiarly Czech method of solving political disputes by throwing people out of very high windows. Yes, it's a marvellous thing. It's called defenestration. It means, like, to push through a window, essentially. Um, there two, three, three great occasions there have been defenestrations, um, some of them tragic, some of them not so. Um, the first defenestration of Prague uh, kicks off a whole range of wars. Same thing again the second time round. Uh, the second time round, there were some uh, Catholic councillors. These were wars of religion between... Protestantism was kind of really invented in Prague rather than in, uh, by Martin Luther, just quietly, a century before Lutheranism started. And the Catholic councillors were thrown out of the walls, of the, uh, out of the window of the palace and from a second-storey window, and they survived by landing in a gigantic dung heap at the foot of that. And uh, the Protestants at the time thought, ha, ha, they landed in the dung heap. And, of course, the Catholics at the time said, ah, oh, yes, the Blessed Virgin Mary put it there to break their fall. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you might have seen the Virgin's hand just gently let them down into the shit. So there we are. Uh, yes, wars of religion have gone through that place so thoroughly with such horrific consequences. I think there has to be a connection between that and the fact that the Czech Republic is the least religious nation in Europe today. They're completely different from their Polish cousins in that sense. That's interesting in itself. The, the way that you've told these stories throughout the book, it's a yarn spinner, really. You've injected a lot of people into it. 
And I noted with great interest that Christopher Menz, who Adelaideans will remember was the director of the State um, Art Gallery of South Australia and is now director of the National Gallery, also writes reviews for the Australian Review of Books. And he wrote some words on, on the Golden Maze. And I did notice with curiosity that he sort of sniffed that the first half of it, it's definitely not a scholarly work. And to me, that seemed really curious in a, a fairly landlocked view of what history is and what history isn't, how, how you are and are not allowed to write history. And I was quite taken aback by that. What's, what are your thoughts on that sort of view of what you can and can't do in what's deemed to be a history book? I don't know. I mean, I mean, that's a rather silly thing to say, I think. I mean, I'm, it, it's footnoted. It's, foot, it's got a gigantic bibliography. It's very, very well written, carefully mm. researched. I don't think anyone's been able to f poke any holes in it either. Um, mm. Historically, I don't think I've found that's anything that's incorrect. I don't really know how to respond to that. I, I mean, that might not have been to his taste, the first part of the book. The 20th century bit, I think he liked a lot more. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't really know how to respond to that. I mean, I, I think writing, all writing of history is an act of... Uh, discrimination and discernment. Like you need to pick out the bits you want to write about, uh, and find the bits that are important, and understand why they're important, and then make them compelling at the same time. I think you've actually described your own book best. Well, on the cover, you've described mm. it as a biography of Prague, which I think is a really nice way of telling the tales of a city and bringing it to life in a in a contemporary fashion. Mm. Indeed, yes, that's right. That, yes, I've nothing more to say except I agree with that. Yeah, that's why it is. It's definitely personalised. Yeah, that's why it begins with me and why I wanted to write the book and why I care so much about the place at the at the outset of uh, the the um, the aftermath of the Velvet Revolution. Yeah, you've written three books based on history. Now, mm. where next? I've got a few ideas. Uh, I don't want to say what they are just yet because they've still got to settle in my mind. I've got two two things I'm chasing at the moment. Um, one is about a place, and more, another is more about, of an, uh, about an idea. So um, I'll just I'll be a bit cagey about that if that's all right, mm -hmm. and, until I've uh, got them more settled in my idea. But I've already begun researching them. But unfortunately, both of them require travel. Uh, mm. uh, travel. <laughs> Remember that. I can't tell you how exciting it was to get on a plane to come to Adelaide, I've got to tell you. I swear to God, it was nice. Ooh, this is exciting, we're going to Adelaide again. This is great. Yeah. How difficult is it then for you at the moment to be juggling your time between being a broadcaster and being a writer? Um, it's... it's I, I tend to work really, really hard. Like, I don't think I've... I've I hardly took a day off for several years in writing that book. I was just spending every waking moment thinking about it in and around doing... Uh, broadcasting my show. I, I tend to do a lot of reading on the bus <laughs> I, I actually do, and write on the bus as well. I've got an iPad and I sort of, I, I like the peace and quiet of the bus. No one can really get at you in the bus unless someone's playing, unless the driver's playing bad FM rock music or something at the, at the front, which is completely annoying to me. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I've been spending every waking moment sort of working on this. It became a complete obsession for me to write this. I spent much more time writing this than my other two books. I think probably as much in the other two books combined in order to cover that sweep of history of, uh, of 1,100 years of history here. Um, it, 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 it completely and totally absorbed me. The most, funnily enough though, the bit that I ended up spending more time writing about was the bit I thought I wouldn't enjoy writing at all, uh, which was the chapter about the uh, period after the Soviet invasion, the period that they call normalisation, which is when a, a weary form of totalitarianism took back hold again on the city after the Soviet invasion had thrown out the reformers and it then became 
the culture sort of became frozen. But just, be, just, before the, just below the surface of that frozen official culture was this vibrant rock and roll culture that was going on in Prague at the time, largely led by a band called the Plastic People of the Universe. Um, and I found, I tracked down the ex-singer of the Plastic People of the Universe, who's a Canadian guy called Paul Wilson, who now lives, uh, back, lives, in, lives back in Canada again. And it was he that introduced me to the kind of, the, the weirdness of life in Prague in that period, uh, the feeling of living in a surveillance state and to have police, be, to actually try and put on rock and roll gigs where police beat up the supporters, police beat up the concert goers, police beat up the band, band members are thrown into jail for years at a time. I mean, my, my old comedy group, we thought we were transgressive and naughty, but we were never thrown in jail for doing what we did. These guys absolutely were. And their stuff wasn't even particularly political. They were doing rock and roll music that was like, that was based on the Velvet Underground and uh, MC5 and the Stooges and bands like that. But to that, because it was so far outside the official culture, the uh, authorities didn't trust it and they were, they, they were constantly arrested and the health of many of them was broken. In the end, though, they ended up playing for Václav Havel in Prague Castle once he'd taken over and playing in the White House for Bill Clinton. Yeah. Interesting. Just talking about surveillance, there's one little part of the book that oh, you yeah. would actually like to um, do a short reading of. We're going to have a, uh, an opportunity for a few questions after that. There is a central microphone, so anyone who has got some questions for Richard, we'll probably have about 10 minutes or so where we can um, uh, take a few questions. But let's listen to Richard tell us a story out of, about Prague. Like I said, um, the way people survived this period was through jokes. And... Uh, this period around the late 60s, very early 70s in particular, was a particularly nefarious period where listening devices were absolutely everywhere and people became paranoid and with good reason because the state was often listening in. And uh, this is a chapter of the book I've called The Ear. Bring this up a bit. Three apparatchiks came to Prague one month for a party conference. After the first day, they sat up late in their hotel room drinking and telling stories. The alcohol loosened their tongues a little and they began to complain about the secret police. One of them hushed the other two and said, what if they're listening to us right now? The other two laughed. So the man decided to play a joke. He went downstairs to the hotel reception and asked the woman at the desk to deliver three cups of tea to the room in 15 minutes. When he rejoined his friends, he sat down and leant towards a vase of plastic flowers and said, Hello, Comrade Major. Could you have three cups of tea sent up to our room, please? <laughs> His friends laughed, but when the tea arrived, they blanched, made their excuses and went to bed. The next morning, the man went out for a walk, but when he returned to the hotel, his friends were gone. He asked the receptionist what had happened to them. They've been arrested, she said. They would have arrested you too, but the Comrade Major really liked your joke about the tea. <laughs> the dread that one's conversation might be overheard was the subject of many jokes from this time. Some were long, shaggy dog stories. Others achieved a kind of pithy perfection. An American visits a Czech relative in Prague. How are things going, he asks. Oh, you know, replies the Czech. Can't complain. <laughs> The secret police devoted enormous resources to keeping tabs on troublemakers. The dissident writer Ludwig Watzelik and his wife Madler discovered tiny microphones hidden in every room in their apartment. Their phone was bugged 
and another apartment in their block was taken over by STB's secret police agents to monitor their conversations. Thus, for 20 years, they avoided discussing anything of significance out loud and wrote it down instead on flushable sheets of toilet paper. Thank you. Difficult days indeed. Um, and that just reminded me sort of, uh, of another anecdote in the book where the people were quite happy to stand up to authorities and, and really stick it to them. The giant statue of Stalin that was carved oh, yeah. was oh, uh, yeah. not given the most glamorous or flattering name, nickname by the people. The Stalinist tri show trials in Prague were amongst the cruelest and most vicious of that time. All sorts of very decent people were judicially murdered by the regime in the early 1950s. Uh, it brought such a pall on the city, the regime was so frightened of Stalin that they came up with an idea. In Prague, they said, we are going to build the biggest statue of Stalin in the world. And they held a competition. And all local sculptors were expected to apply to enter the competition. And of course, all of them were terrified. It was won by a man called Ottokar Svets, who who didn't want to win, so much so that he'd actually plagiarised someone else's design, hoping that he would be disqualified, but no, he won, to his great dismay and terror. And his design featured Stalin in, in sort of granite, standing up like this, and with two lines of people behind him, of workers, soldiers, sort of surging forward up towards a future, in two sort of lines right behind him. And when the pictures of the design were published in Ruta Pravo, the, the paper, they instantly called it the Meat Queue. That was the nickname that they, <laughs> the Czechs came up for with the statue. And this was the beginning of an of a awful nightmare for poor Otkar Svets. He was terribly worried that it wasn't the right size. The regime came around to his studio all the time and said, can you make Comrade Stalin a little bigger and the other figures a bit smaller? And why is he facing in this direction and not east? Why does he seem to be crossing the river and not actually having crossed the river? Uh, and members of the Central Committee were bringing little pen knives, slicing off little bits of clay to sort of, of his design, of his model, so to make it more to, his, more to their liking. And he, he began to get terribly worried about all of this. He began to drink heavily, began to cheat on his wife, so much so, his wife became so distressed and he found her dead in the bathtub one evening when he got home. He himself became more, more and more drunk and, more and, and more, more and more frightened. And just at the point when this was about to be unveiled, he got into a taxi to be taken to the statue and the taxi driver, not knowing who he was, said, oh, I wouldn't, wouldn't want to be the, the guy who designed that statue. And he said, why is that? And he said, because look at it. There's... <laughs> The comrade uh, farmer woman, she's got her hand extended behind her and it looks like she's grabbing the crotch of the Soviet soldier behind her. <laughs> and when he realised that, he went home and killed himself. The statue was unveiled, it was put in place, just in time for Stalin to die. And once he died, the Soviets began a campaign of de-Stalinisation. And the Czechs were very slow to pick this up because it was in the name of Stalin that they'd murdered all these people who were vaguely critical of the regime or not even critical of the regime at all. And eventually they were persuaded they would have to get rid of the statue. But how to do it 
in such a way that no one would know. Well, it was clearly impossible. They, they stuffed it full of TNT. They told everyone to stay indoors for two weeks. They tried to put scaffolding all around it, but of course it was hopeless. The explosions that were required to build the world's biggest statue of Stalin made the whole city shake, shattered windows everywhere. It was said that one of the loyal comrades of the party was inspecting the whole thing when the, the, it was detonated. A gigantic chunk of granite came sailing by and decapitated him. Um, <laughs> This is a statue that is famous now in Prague. Not a trace of it was left. Afterwards, everyone pretended it had never existed in the first place, and it's known as the statue that killed everyone that touched it. <laughs> Incredible. This rollicking story of triumphant moments and great despair, uh, you finish it, I think, with um, an interesting sort of melancholy. There's hope in your, in your final words, but there's also a reserve and a melancholy, which I think is quite... Mm. Um, it, sort of plugs into, again, that Czech psyche that you, that you found and you read so accurately, I think. Yes. You know, I mentioned at the start, the, when I was there in the aftermath of the Velvet Revolution, Jan Palak, the young man who self-immolated, and the commemoration, the first legal one I, I attended with those soldiers at the top of Wenceslas Square. Well, at the January 2019, I was able to go to the 50th anniversary of Jan Palak's self-immolation, which was held as a big event at the top of Wenceslas Square. And a great many people came to be part of that, but the president was not invited and the prime minister was not invited. There is a big pro-democracy movement in Prague to sustain Czech democracy, which is under a degree of threat, it's thought. Democracy in Hungary has been debauched. Democracy in Poland has been debauched. I don't think you could call either of those places proper democracies anymore with a co-opted judiciary and a cowed uh, national media in those countries. Now, the president, the current Czech president, who takes a ceremonial role, uh, has expressed warm sympathies to Vladimir Putin's Russia and to Xi Jinping's China. Um, and another prank sort of event, a group of art terrorists, they call themselves, uh, broke into the presidential palace one day a couple of years ago and posing as chimney sweeps, they got on top of the roof of the presidential palace, <laughs> took down the presidential flag, and in honour of Zeman, the, uh, Zeman the, the, the president, they hoisted up instead a gigantic, huge pair of red silk underpants. <laughs> and they were saying, these are Zeman's underpants. You know, and they, they even took an ISIS-type terrorist photo of themselves with balaclavas holding up the red underpants, like the giant underpants. Uh, the current Prime Minister, uh, Andrei Babish, is alleged to have been a secret police informer. He's the second richest man in the Czech Republic and owns much of its media. So there was this feeling at this commemoration that of precariousness, the democracy that was so hard won and won so joyfully and joyously in 89 might be under threat. But there are all sorts of reasons, I think, why democracy will stay in place in the Czech Republic in a way where it's failed in Poland and Hungary. One is that the talented young people have not left as they have in Poland and Hungary. By and large, talented young people have chosen to stay and make their lives in Prague and in the Czech Republic. Secondly, there are all these really long-standing habits of communality, uh, shared societies, like informal organisations. Everyone's got like a little informal club they belong to in Prague that they show up to, whether it's like a mother's group or a childcare group or a beer drinking group or a petanque group or something like that. They're great joiners, the Czechs, in their own quiet sort of way. And that stuff is easily missed, but it forms the real kind of 
undergirding of a proper civil society. So while I say at the end I, I attended this, this big rally, it was terribly moving, at the end of the speeches we all held little taper candles and walked from Wenceslas Square to the beautiful Old Town Square in the Old Town of Prague. And people were singing the national anthem, which is very sweet. A lot of national anthems are all like, we're the best, you're not tough, suck on it, you know, whatever, like the Marseillaise or whatever. Uh, but the, the, the Czech national anthem is, where is my home? And it's about how beautiful the land is. And so to hear that sung softly, it sounded so sweet and hopeful and mournful and melancholy all at the same time. I hope they're able to sustain their democracy and I hope we are too. Mm -hmm. And on that very optimistic note, I think um, we've drawn to the end of our session. This is a terrific book. The way that Richard talks is exactly how he writes and he imbues his book with energy, verve and fun. Please do buy The Golden Maze. Richard is going to be over at the writer's tent who'll be signing. It's always a pleasure to listen to one of our great national storytellers, Mr Richard Feidler. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, David. And Cheers. thank you, our Auslan interpreters, too. Thank you. Thank you.